0: We're going to take a look at a place in the Word of God, titling this one, "What is good enough for God?" A lot of times we are faced with decisions. We're faced with things in our life, and we make the. We're wondering, is this good enough for God? Now we're we're taking this on, and we're tying it into some of the things that we have going on because one of the things that comes up with a lot of Christians around this time of November is. Is this candidate good enough for God? How many have ever asked that? I mean, we're looking at this one. I mean, they all sometimes look bad. You ever been there where they? they, no matter who you vote, it looks like everybody is bad. (laughs) This one doesn't serve God. This one doesn't serve God. This one doesn't seem to have the right views here. This one doesn't have the right views here. So I came up with this question. And you know, if you ask the right question, you can get a good answer. Is anything good enough for God? So we got to take a look at this, because sometimes we have an expectation of where something needs to be, and if it doesn't quite measure up to it, then we kind of just throw everything on out. But we want to take a look at this and see, uh, and we also tie it in with our own decisions. Sometimes you have to make a decision. Have you ever been in a place where you felt like the two decisions you had to make, one was bad and one was not so good? You ever been in a spot like that? You didn't really like any either of them. And you were having a hard time seeing the hand of God on them. Because you have an expectation that if God's going to be in this, it ought to be this way. So we're going to try and help it with that as well. We're going to uncover some things about assumptions on it as too. I didn't get a whole lot of comments last week, but the few that I did seemed to center on that one statement we made there at the end. What holds me back the most in life are not the truths I don't know, but those I have accepted as true, but are not. So I thought, since you, since that one seems to stick with most people, I'll give you the doctrine on it, because it's not good just to have something in your life that you like. You want to find out why is it true. The reason that that statement, the reason I make that statement, the reason I see that statement as true, is because what I have not learned, I have not rejected. What I have not learned, I have not rejected. If you have not learned a truth of God, you haven't rejected it. That's important. You just haven't learned it yet. You're ignorant of that particular truth. So you haven't rejected it yet. But what false things I accepted represents truth of God I have rejected. That is why what you have taken on that is false will hold you back more than what you don't know. Because if you take on something that is false, in order to take it onto your belief system, you must reject something of God that is true. I'll give it to you this way. How many of you have ever had friends that thought you did something or said something that you didn't do? Never had that go on? And they, they heard this about you and they accepted it as true. Your thought is, how can you accept that about me? Don't you know me? Right? When you accept something false about God, how do you think that God does not take that same stance? Do you not know me? Do you not know that I would not do that? When the children of Israel in the wilderness, God brought us out here to kill us. What do you think God's saying? Do you not know me? Have I not divulged my purpose with you? Have I not delivered you and and done all these things? Do you not know me? You see, I am rejecting what is true about God in order to take on something that is false. That is why that will hold you back more than what you don't know. Now, it's still good to go out there and learn the stuff you don't know. (laughs) But always be open to letting God take care of that for you. Expose those things for you. Now, we've been looking at a number of different things on the assumptions, and we covered a, a few of them last time. Last, if, we, if we make false assumptions, we're making answering correctly nearly impossible. But often we guard those things that are false in our life as sacred truths, and they keep us blind and deaf to real answers. Let's get over here to 1 Kings chapter 20. You know this story, we've covered it a few times, though it's been about three years since we've been here in it, but it's a worthwhile story because of what it shows you. So we're actually going through this for a different purpose than we've ever gone through this story before. In chapter 20, 1 Kings chapter 20 and verse 1, now Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together, 32 kings were with him with horses and chariots, and he went and besieged Samaria and made war against it. Then he sent messengers into the city of Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine, your loveliest wives and children are mine. The king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, I and all I have are yours. Then the messengers came back and said, Thus speaks Ben-Hadad, saying, Indeed, I have sent to you, saying, You shall... Deliver me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. But I will send my servants to you tomorrow. About this time they shall search your house and the houses of your servants. And it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your in your eyes, they will put it in their hands and take it. So they're basically saying, we don't just want the stuff that we like. We want whatever you think is good. We want to make your life miserable. And Ahab had been okay with this up till now. But And we don't know all the reasons why Ahab was okay with this. But Syria, had just gathered, it says 32 kings, but some of them are, are more tribal leaders or, or things like that. But this is basically the people that Syria has conquered and they're bringing them all along. So they're going up against a very large force. And you may feel like we have no choice. We're either going to lose everything, it's going to be burned and I'm going to die, or we, uh, we surrender and at least we keep some stuff. And so he's willing to give up some stuff to keep some comfort, but... When he went this far, he then said, nah, that's a, that's a little bit too much. Now, Ben-Hadad is king of Syria, but if you remember in the chapter before that Elijah had been on the mountain, and after he ran from the mountain, he had a time with God, and God said, I want you to anoint three people. Do you remember the three people? I want you to anoint Elisha as prophet in your place. I want you to anoint Hazael as king over Syria. And I want you to anoint Jehu. And Jehu is going to wipe out the house of Ahab to bring judgment upon, actually it's the house of Omri. Ahab is the son of Omri. And um, but he's, Omri was bad. Ahab seems to be at least as bad. We don't get a whole lot of details on Omri. But if you remember when we covered, went through some of this before, we showed you that more than likely, Omri had a call from God like Jeroboam. It's just not recorded in the word. We can see that because of some of the things that were left behind. But anyway, that's that's not something we're going to get into here today. But Ben-Hadad is king of Syria. Hazael is supposed to be king of Syria. And if you go back and you look at, uh, I believe it comes up in 2 Kings, if I'm remembering right, it's around chapter, somewhere around chapter 6, I think it is. Um, That... Elijah does not go and anoint Hazael, king of Syria. He delegates it to, to Elisha. And it does not happen right away. So all the things that Ben-Hadad is doing, apparently he's not supposed to be king anymore. I don't know if that quite counts into this story because this is only one chapter removed. And I'm not exactly sure the time frame. I've seen some estimates, but uh, it may be that he was supposed to be anointed already. And uh, this guy was supposed to be taken out. Don't, don't know exactly, but when... Elisha came up and he anointed him. He said, you're going to do horrible things. And Hazael said, what am I, a dog that I would do such horrible things to people? Why would you think that I would do this? And he listed some of the horrible things that he would do. And he did. So when you look at that, I ask this question every time I come to that story. This is a bad man. He's going to do bad things. And yet he's one of the people that God said anoint him king over Syria. Isn't that interesting? Now it's not over king over Israel or king over Judah. It's king over Syria, which is an evil kingdom. But God has used some kingdoms, some kings over foreign kingdoms before. He used Nebuchadnezzar. You remember the stories of that from Daniel. He used Cyrus. He's used other heathen uh, kings before. He's even used uh, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, on a on a couple of occasions. Not all of them were were as evil. But in verse fifteen. I'm sorry, he was um, 2 Kings chapter 8. I did write it down here. 2 Kings chapter 8. If you want to go and to look at it, 2 Kings 8, 7 through 15, and you will find how Elisha speaks to Hosea when he anoints him. Verse 15 here. Then the Lord said to him, Go return to your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, I I guess I put it in there. I didn't mean to put it in there. We are going to skip over that. I'm going to leave that for you to, to read if you want to. Now, the message from Ben-Hadad first, we said, was accepted. He believed, I guess, that he was in no position to resist this. But um, he was, Ahab had a mighty kingdom. It's not like he was a weakling. He had no army. He actually did have a, a decent amount. And Omri actually brought Israel back into a place of dominance, and they conquered a lot of nations. And actually, Ahab in one of the uh, episodes with uh, Jehoshaphat, is trying to go to war to bring back some nations that had rebelled against them. So they're not weak, but they don't see that they're as strong as Syria is. Verse 7, So the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Notice, please, and see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent to me for my wives, my children, my silver, and my gold, and I did not deny him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, do not listen or consent. Therefore, he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, tell my Lord, the king, all that you sent for to your servant the first time I will do. But this thing I cannot do. The messengers departed, brought back word to him. Then Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, now watch this verse. The gods do so to me and more also if enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful For each of the people who follow me. Does that sound familiar at all? Do you remember Jezebel? The queen. Said to Elijah. May the gods do. Do so to me and more also. If I do not make your life as one of those. Remember that? Sounds exactly like the same vowel. Whenever you hear two people from completely different places saying exactly the same thing, what do you know? The source is probably the same. source is probably the same. You'll do it this way. If you run into somebody out on the street and they have a southern accent or they say certain words that southern people do. I spent some time in the south and down in the south, I got used to it for a little while, and I got unused to it now. So I, I don't do that. I don't know that I did it a whole lot out there. But one of the things, if you went into the restaurant, if you wanted to get a, a Diet Coke, the, the waiter would come up to you, the waitress would come up to you, whoever, and they would say, would you like a soda? Would you like a drink? If you're down south, you know what they ask you? Would you like some pop? That's what they ask you. That's what it is. They don't have soda down there. They have pop. So if you heard somebody say, would you like some pop? What does that tell you? Oh, you're from the South, aren't you? (laughs) If you have somebody who asks you, where's the bubbler? Where are they from? New England area. I learned that when I went to college. We had uh, two, uh, two friends of mine. They were from the Boston area. Boston. They drove the car, and so they had. A, they were walking around campus for a little while, looking for the bubbler. You know where the bubbler is? The what? The bubbler. Yeah, I, they wanted a water fountain. They call it the bubbler there because if you go up to those things, you know, you got the big gallon, uh, the multi-gallon uh, uh, thing, and you hit the button to get the water out, it goes bubble, bubble. <laughs> they called it a bubbler. <laughs> I don't know that. So you know, if you, different places, when they're from different places, they have a, they have a source. We, we always pick on the news media that because you look at all these news media, the next day they all are saying exactly the same thing. They're using the same phraseologies. Why? Because they have the same source. Whenever you see Jezebel having the same vocabulary as a king from Syria, they have the same source. I made this note. I don't know if I made it in your outline or not, but I know I made it in mine because it's one of those things that I've always taken to heart. Christians should not be sounding like the world. The world may be okay with certain phrases. The world may be okay with certain words. That does not mean you should be. Christians should not sound like the world because our source is different. People ought to notice that about you. Now, here's one of my favorite verses. Verse 11. So the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. That's one of my favorite lines. I used to quote it. We used to play hockey. Lamar and I, we had fun because they never let us be on the same team. Never would let us be on the same team. And we were always the face-off people. So we're always head-to-head, facing off. And we're... We're trash talking and stuff like that. And I'd always throw that line out to him. (laughs) But it's a great line. Don't boast like you're coming out of the battle. As one who's going. Being one who's going into the battle. Let's finish this battle up here first. Before you start bragging. On who's winning. And it happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message. As he and the kings were drinking at the command post. That he said to his servants. Get ready. And they got ready to attack the city. So they were drinking. They are so confident of victory. That they're drinking and getting drunk. Before they go into battle. Sounds kind of stupid doesn't it? (laughs) Suddenly. A prophet approached Ahab. King of Israel. If. It is Elisha. Who's new in the prophet realm, but he is there. He's been anointed. If it is Elisha or Elijah, would their names not be mentioned? They're very prominent. But when Elisha was on the mountain, do you remember what, he said, what God said to him? Oh, by the way, you're not the only one. I've got 7,000. 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to me. Keep that number in mind. This is one Of those 7,000 that God has. That he just called, you know what, we need to send a message, let's get this guy. So suddenly a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel. He suddenly came out, and here he approached And That means that Ahab did not send for him. God sent him to Ahab. Very seldom can I find a place where Ahab sent for a prophet unless he was prodded by Jehoshaphat. Or a prophet just came and approached him. That's usually how you see it. So this is what he said. Thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into whose hand? Into your hand, who's the your? Ahab. How good of a king is Ahab? He's not good. Who's God delivering him to? Ahab. How is that? How can we take a king who has been leading the nation into worshiping Baals and Ashtoreth? How how does God do that? Well, we could wonder. Let's go on. Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, we just got done with the mountaintop experience there. The fire coming down, burning up the altar. You would think that would tell them that God is Lord. But God's doing something else. He's working on Ahab. Isn't it interesting how much he's working on Ahab? We probably only know this because of the presence of Elijah. The presence of Elijah in Ahab's life gives us a lot more detail. God may have worked in some of these other kings... Just as much, we just don't know because we didn't have that prominent of a prophet. That's just a guess on our part. But So, Ahab said, by whom? And and he said, thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the provinces. So he's telling them who's going to be set in the battle. Then he said, who will set the battle in order? And he answered, you. Now, he didn't assume that he was going to set the thing in order. He's the king, but he didn't assume that. He asked the prophet. And the prophet already knew. Isn't that interesting? The prophet delivered a word, but he doesn't say everything in the word, but he has enough of the word to answer questions. And he answers two questions about this battle. Now, one thing about Ahab, he was an ungodly ruler, but he came to the throne legitimately. Remember a couple of years ago, we went through and, and looked at different ones that did not as I said, his father Omri seems to have had a very similar call to Jeroboam to take over. And Ahab is the one who was succeeding. He was in the next succession as kings go. So he didn't usurp it. He didn't kill anybody to get them out of the way. He just came to power the way kings come to power. We have people in the Bible that usurped the throne, that took it in the wrong way, that killed people to get it, and they came into a bad fate. Verse 15, then he mustered the young leaders of the provinces and there were 232 after them. He mustered all the people, all the children of Israel, 7,000. Now I've been referring to this. I think many of you were here and we, we spent a Sunday morning and we went through all the kings of Judah, of all the kings of Israel and Judah. How do you remember that one Sunday morning you we went through all the kings of Judah and Israel? I mean, it's a big undertaking. If you were not here, and you want to go through, you want to go through that. I can find it. It's a couple years old. I can find it and, and text it to you. Send me a text, mention it to me on the way out and I'll let you know. The reason that we did that is so that you understand how God looks at leaders that took a, the throne illegitimately, what made them legitimate and how God looked at those that were good and bad. Cause we had a lot of them in there to look at. Anyway, not getting into all that here now. Verse fifteen again. Then he mustered the young leaders of the provinces, and there were two hundred and thirty-two. And after them, he mustered all the people, and all the children of Israel were seven thousand. Isn't it interesting that there are seven thousand who have not bowed the knee to the Baals, and there are seven thousand in his army? I do not, ha- I can't stand here and tell you that it's the same seven thousand, but I think it sure is interesting that there are seven thousand in this army that he that God is delivering them through. And there is 7,000 that have not bowed the need. So Ahab sets the forces in order. He, he gets a word of deliverance. And he also gets a word of instruction. And Ahab obeys the word of instruction. Isn't that interesting? He got a word. The word is identified as coming from God. He asked him questions. And he set the battle the way the prophet of God said to do it. He obeyed. So they went out at noon. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post. Now, I, I didn't see this before, but I saw it this time coming through. Watch this part here in these verses. The young leaders of the provinces went out first And Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol, and they told him, saying, men are coming out of Samaria. So he said, now watch what he says here. If they have come out for peace, take them alive. And if they have come out for war, take them alive. Does that sound at all bizarre to you? If you're going to say this, they come out for war, kill them. If they come out for peace, take them alive. Wouldn't that make more sense? Yes. Otherwise, just say, well, take them alive. It could possibly be that he has gotten so drunk that he makes no sense. <laughs> How many of you know when, when people get drunk, they can sometimes say things that make no sense? That may be possibly what happened here. I don't know. But they were drinking. And it does say it Twice. Then these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed them, and each one killed his man. So the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. Then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. How many people? 7,000 plus a couple hundred of the leaders. So Ahab heeds the instruction and they receive what the prophet had said, a great victory. Now verse 22. And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said to him, go strengthen yourself, take note and see what you should do for in the spring of the year the king of Syria will come up against you. He doesn't tell him what to do. He says, look, go take inventory. Find out what you need because he's coming back in the spring and you got to be ready. So before... It was more of a miraculous thing. On this one, he's telling them, prepare. you got a year, prepare. Isn't it interesting that God doesn't just block the battle from happening? He warns them and says, get ready. Then the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore, Therefore they were stronger than we, but if we fight against them in the plain, surely we will be stronger than they. So do this thing. Dismiss the kings, each from his position, and put captains in their places. And you shall muster an army like the army that you have lost. Horse for horse, chariot for chariot. And then we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. Now this is the truth of heathen people. Is there a God of the hills? And a god of the plains. No. But they have made that assumption. That there are gods of the hills. And there are gods of the plains. Obviously their gods are gods of the hills. So let's get them out of the hills. And fight them on the plains. They've made an assumption haven't they? They're betting people's lives. On this assumption that they've made. They have absolutely no facts at all. They have nothing for which to substantiate this. Maybe they heard the story of how God showed up on the mountain with Elijah. Maybe where they were fighting was more involved in the hills. And so they have taken that story and this story and they come up with a conclusion. Is it a right conclusion? Yes, sometimes we're just as stupid. We look at things and how we did it. Well, when I prayed, I prayed this way and I ended it with this so I just need to always end my prayers with this and then that will happen why? because well it worked that way well I I get better answers if I talk to God in the morning it seems every time I pray to Him in the morning I get an answer but if I pray at night time I don't get as many do you serve a God of the morning? no but you see how these things can kind of work you, I mean, some some guys. I never did this, but there are people out there who have done this. They um, they're going to go watch a ball game. Women are not this stupid. <laughs> they they really aren't. But there are some guys that are this stupid. I've I've heard them talk, and I just I just, I scoff inside. I, I inwardly I scoff at them. I they, I wore these socks the last time my team played this team, and so I'm going to keep wearing these socks. In fact, I'm not even going to wash them. It's like, oh man. Well, I sat on this chair. So I have to sit on the, on this chair again. Now, if you, how many have ever watched that show? It's not on the air anymore. But, um, uh, the Tim, the Tim, not the Tim Toolman, the other one that he did, uh, Last Man Standing. Last Man Standing. He did, they did an episode where the, uh, I guess Denver Broncos had gone to the Super Bowl and I think they won the Super Bowl and, it was the first year that he didn't watch it in a certain place. And so he says, now you're going to have to watch the game every year in that place. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Just making fun of that aspect of what some guys will do on these things. But you see, we come to the same conclusion sometimes as with, with Christians. Well, I prayed this way. I said, if it be your will, and it happened. So I guess I always need to put on that thing, if it be your will. do not be doing that. But this is the truth of heathens. Well, we got gods of the hills. Let's take them into the plains. Let's take it out that way. If you have wrong theology, wrong theology will bring about useless actions. No matter how much faith we have in them. You can have a whole lot of faith in your wrong theology. But if you developed wrong theology... No matter what you have to substantiate it. Yeah, but it worked. I don't care if it worked. Is it in the Word of God? That's what matters. Verse 26, So it was in the spring of the year that Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions and they went out against them. Now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats while the Syrians filled the countryside. That's quite a comparison. Two little flocks of goats And the Syrians filled the countryside. Now, I didn't mention this before, but remember that um, the northern tribes had just gone through three and a half years of famine. No water. Elijah prayed, no water. And the time on the mountain that finally ended it. Three and a half years of no water and no food probably would have taken a uh, beating on his army and some of the forces that they had, some of the horses that they may have had, some of the things they would have had available to them. And that may be why they don't have that much power. So they're outnumbered again. Verse 28. Then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys. Therefore I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now the way it comes out here, it seems like it's a different man of God. It doesn't seem to refer back to the one before. When he came back for the second word, it seemed to He showed up again. This seems to be a different one. It's almost like God is saying, the power is not in the prophet that I send, the power is in the God that is sending them. So as far as I can tell from the reading here, this is the different man. Then a man of God came and spoke to the king. So here's what he says. Because the Syrians have said, the Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys, therefore I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now the prophet before had already said they're coming back in the spring. Get yourselves ready. This prophet comes and says I'm delivering them into your hand because this is what they said. Do you think that a year ago that God knew that they were going to say that? Absolutely. He just didn't tell them. But he already knew why he was going to deliver it. Not necessarily because of anything good on Ahab's Ahab's side but because they, they said this about me. I don't like that they said that about me. God does not like assumptions made of Him. He is light and truth and nothing else should be attributed to Him. That goes for us too. Don't be attributing things to God that God is not. Don't be doing it. Don't be saying, well, God is this way or God is for that." Don't be doing it. You make sure you know. Don't make assumptions. Attribute it to God. He is light and He is truth. Anyone who makes false things out as if they are of God they are testifying that they do not know God. And they camped opposite each other for seven days. I don't know what's with the Syrians. If you got to this army out, outmanned this much, you'd think you'd go after a little bit faster, but maybe they're thinking of what happened a year ago. So they're trying to just kind of watch this thing, see what's happening. So it was on the seventh day the battle was joined, and the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians... In one day. They don't have a 100,000 soldiers, the Israelites. But they killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. But the rest fled, the rest fled to Aflac into the city. Then a wall on 20, fell on 27,000 of the men who were left. And Ben Hadad fled and went into the city, into an inner chamber. So they're losing the battle, they flood into the city to try and get some protection inside the city, and it just so happens that while they are in the city, a wall falls and kills 27,000 more. What kind of a wall needs to fall to kill 27,000 people? That's a wall. We're not talking about a section of a wall. That has got to be one long bit of wall. And it fell upon them and killed 27,000. So now they can't say that he's God of the hills or only God of the hills. They can't say he's only God of the plains. And they can't say he's only God of the cities. Because no matter where they've gone, hills, plains, cities, God has gotten them. This is how it's gone. And so far, what has Ahab done? Ahab has obeyed. He's done what God has said to do. So they get another great victory. Let me get to verse 31. It's been pretty good so far, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, all good things seem to come to an end when it comes to Ahab. Then his servant said to him, look now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put sackcloth around our waist, ropes around our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. How many of you have ever fought this reputation of Christians? Well, Christians are so nice. You can do anything you want to them and they're still going to be nice to you. Have you heard that? You've heard those kind of things. You know when I was I told you some of the stories when I was down at the pizza place, and there was a lot of people down there who had the idea i don 't know why they, they didn't get it from me because they didn't hear what I had done at college before I had gone there. But when we got down there and they knew I was a Ramus student, I was studying to be a pastor, they thought I was a really nice guy, and I did some things that altered that belief i I did things to one of the head cooks He, he and i we are still good friends. 40 years or something like that, we are still good friends. We still, he just lost his mom just a little bit ago, but um, we're, we're still good friends. We still keep up with each other, what he's doing. He's serving God, teaching kids. He's doing some, some great things in, in there, but I remember this, uh, these two heathen girls that took over the shop. Uh, one of them I eventually became good friends with and actually took her out to uh, one of the meetings down at Raymond. We went out there with a the, with a few people, and she had never seen the anointing of God come down upon a place like she saw it then. She is still in church today. Her and her husband still go to church today. Just got back in touch with her. Uh, she was kind of away for a little while. Found that out. She's still she's still there. But uh, they they were living heathenistic lifestyles for the first part that I knew them. Her and this this other I don't forget the other lady was. And um, so we just decided, me and another another guy. We decided we're going to get them. We we're going to get them. How many of you ever heard? Remember my mouse story? I, th- I was talking to somebody. I said, "Your what story?" I guess I don't tell it that much. I love my mouse story. I had so much fun with that mouse story. So we had this this uh, uh, problem in our in our pizza restaurant. We had a skid of flour, and the mice had come in and infested the flour. We, we saw it before they got into too much of it, but. You had to throw away whatever it is they got into. They take a bite out of it. The whole bag is gone. So we're throwing all that stuff out, getting rid of it, cleaning it all out. And so we decided to take action against these guys. And so we had put these live bait traps around the store and around outside. And so the idea was we had to go around and check them every while. And we did this for for quite a while. How many of know when you get something new in there, you know, you're checking it. we checked, check, you know, every couple of days. We'd pull them out. We'd take a look. If there was stuff in there, we'd empty it. And kept it kept clean. But, you know, after a while, you forget. And so we kind of had forgotten. And so we had, um, I was out in the back. I was sweeping up some stuff. And I pulled out one of the live trap. Oh. And I said to the to the guy near me, I said, Jim, I haven't checked these in a long, long time. And so um, we, we opened it up, and it was filled with dead mice. In fact they had been in there so long they were some of them were skeletons. And so I said uh I have an idea. <laughs> and so we put it back. We put it back and we had another one that was out in the front and um uh it was brand new it had just been put in. And so we had the the thing all taken care of. We had it planned out. And so we uh lured her into the back room. And just as they did, Jim was talking with her and they were in the very, very back part of the room. And just then I grabbed the trap that had all of the vice in it and I rigged it so that I would open it up and they would spill out on the floor. Oh, that just did her in. She just was so... And she jumped up and she landed on the dough machine. And just, we had a big dough machine. you think you have a mixer, you know, little slime mixers you have at home. Ours are life size. They are, they stand about this tall. And she jumped up and flopped herself right over top of this thing. Oh, she was, she was, uh, not doing so well. And we did it a second time with the, uh, with the other one that had nothing in it. And so they have, they both, they have mice on their brain. All they're thinking about is mice. And so what we had done was we have a, a drop safe in our in our store. And so what we have is we have an upper section of the safe and a lower section of the safe. And so the money that we get throughout the day, you had to keep making drops. And so what would happen is you would just do the easy way and put it into the upper part of the safe. But every once in a while when there are not a whole lot of people in there, you would gather all that money up and then put it down into the lower part of the safe. And so there, there was more money in the lower part of the safe than there was in the upper part of the safe. But when you opened up the safe on the floor, the first part, you can see everything in there. So you just go in there and you you gather it all up. But then you take the second level out and you pull the, the, you do the combination, you get the stuff out, and it's dark. You can't see down there. So what you have to do, you have to reach down. There's short people too. You have to reach down and feel around for all the money and then pull it out. And then, and then get it out. So then what we did was we took a fluffy ball. And we put it in the lower part of the safe. Because you never access the lower part of the safe until the end of the night. You only access the upper part of the safe. And drop the stuff down into the, to the lower part. And so, we had this thing down here, so we were come to that part, we were doing the stuff to close, you know, and she was a supervisor and who, uh, whoever was with her, she was the manager or I don't, I don't know, whatever it was. They were they were taking care of all that sort of stuff. So when they got to the point of going into the lower part of the safe, we know the how that all works. They're getting to the point, doing the lower part of the safe. As they're getting to that spot, Jim and I, we take a chair. And we pull a chair into the back room, and we sit down in these chairs, and we watch. If it had been today, we would have had our cameras going. But it was not today, we'd have cell phones, all that sort of stuff. So we just watched. And I still to this day remember every glorious moment (laughs) of when she reached down and she started pulling out the money and then reached down and pulled out some more money and reached down and pulled up. And you could see her mind going. And she reached down again. And sure enough, she grabbed hold of the furry ball and pulled it out and just screamed the most blood curling scream that you could ever hear and then she fell on her back and she's down on her knees on the, on the floor rolled over onto her back and just started kicking and screaming and we now are laughing hysterically as we watched this unfold. And then she looked back and she saw us and she figured we had done something. This was not real. You guys! <laughs> oh, that one lived on for a long time. But um, you know, they, they didn't believe the Christians would get you back. So I let them know. If you try and prank me, I will hit you twice as hard as you hit me. And if you want to come back and get me again, I will hit you twice as hard again. And I will tell you, bring it. Because I got as much as you can bring to me. And they backed off. There was not a single person who would not back off from me because I could dream up some really <laughs> nasty stuff. You don't want to be. <laughs> you don't want to be on that. So it didn't take more than two or three times and they really don't play, don't play any jokes on Steve. And I'm okay with that, because I didn't want to come after them. But I wanted them to know I will. Sometimes Christians we get this nice thing, we can't feel like I can't get back at anybody, can't do anything to anybody. If you have people that are doing things against you at work Sitting back and being nice is not going to stop them. Now, keep with your Christianity, but (laughs) get with God. God will inspire you like he did with me with the mice. (laughs) Uh, I could tell you some other ones too that we did, but um, not going to. He said, Look now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put sackcloth around our waist waist and ropes around our heads and go out to the king of Israel, perhaps he will spare your life. Why are they going to dress up like this? Because they are remorseful? No. We think they have a trait we can play upon. Some of the people where you work, the only reason that they do some of the things to you is because they think because you're a Christian, they can get away with it. You got to let them know, no, you're not going to get away with it. That's not going to happen. you've got to be tough sometimes. I had one person down at the shore. we made the they're rich people. I mean most people have not all, but a lot of people who have a house in Ocean City, especially Ocean City is an expensive spot, they aren't poor. They had some money, and as it turned out the the, the wife she worked for uh, I believe he worked for a finance company, and she was a lawyer, I think it was They, they, they both had substantial incomes they drove substantial cars. But they were going to stiff me on the cost of the beds. Uh, you know, I, I'm very tough though. We'll go down the shore, drop a bed off, put it in the house. They'd come in, they inspect it, take it out, and then they send me a check. And I never mind doing that because shore people are great people. They are some of the most honest people. They're hardworking people. I loved doing that for them. But these folks, were they were trying to stiff me. I'd call them, leave them messages. They weren't sending me money back. It was something around $1,800 they owed me for the, for the bids that I put in, the delivery and all that sort of stuff. It was a decent amount. So um, they probably knew, you know, he's a Christian, he's not gonna do, do certain things. They were wrong. They were very wrong. What happened was I had another delivery down there, so I wasn't making a special trip. And so afterwards I got done the delivery, I went over to the house. And I knocked on the door and the husband answered. And he said, oh wow, uh, well she's not here and she has a checkbook. Uh, all right. She back well she won't be back for you know an hour or so. So what I did was I, I left, pulled out, pulled pulled on down about two blocks down from the road, and I sat there. And I waited. And when I saw the second car come in, it was in three minutes. I was in front of the door, knocking on the door. I didn't say, Is she home? I said I saw her pull in, I want my check now. She wouldn't even come out and greet me. She wouldn't even come out and make any excuses. She just wrote the check, gave it to him, and sent it to me. I said, thank you. Because the next step, I was going to go in the house and take them. And I told him that. I said, you either pay me, or I will take them down, and I will take them home. You don't have to be nice all the time. Don't be going out there trying to find ways to bless heathen people. Sometimes you just they're heathen. They understand one language. You gotta speak that language if you're gonna to talk to them. Be tough with them. Be loving. After you get done with that, you know, you can still, hey, how you doing? No, I won't make any more bitch for them. <laughs> I put, I had them on a list. You call me, you're on your own. I'm not making anything for you. And you can do that. It's a, it, the word of God tells us to be wise. Make sure that you're wise. Don't be stupid. But here, all the, the only reason they're doing this is to play on Something that they heard about the kings of Israel. There are not any of these things they're going to dress themselves up to be. Some of the people that are heathens that are around you are playing you. They think think something about you and they're going to dress up to be that to you. It's not genuine and it's not real. But you feel like you have to take it as real. No. God will tell you how to expose it. Did Jesus take the Pharisees at face value? Do you take the religious people at face value? No. <laughs> and neither do you. Be watchful on them. I, I could tell you a story about Tony down there, but uh, there was a, there was a confrontation that we had. He did not expect it out of me. Did not expect it out of me. And I gave him a confrontation like he never thought he would get. And we never had any trouble after that. And it wasn't too long after that he got born again still serving God. Don't think just being nice and easy is going to get people saved. That's what they want you to think. This is not what they're doing here. Not what they should be doing. Verse 32, So they wore sackcloth around their waist, put ropes around their heads, and came to the king of Israel and said, Come on. Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, is he still alive? He thought maybe he's dead. Maybe he died in the battle. Is he still alive? He is my brother. Now the men were watching closely to see whether any sign of mercy would come from him. And they quickly grasped at this word and said, your brother Ben-Hadad. This is what heathen people will do. They latch onto the things that you say and see if you'll go along with them. Yep, yep, he's your brother. We don't need any evidence for that. We don't even care if it's true. But if it will get us what we want, we'll do it. So he said, go bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him and he said, and he had him come up into the chariot. So Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities which my father took from your father I will restore. You may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. Then Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. So he made a treaty with him and sent him away. Verse 35. Now a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to, the, to his neighbor by the word of the Lord, Strike me, please. This could be the third guy involved. And the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. That's an interesting part of the story. We're not going to get into that right now. We we'll won't get into the rest of this. And he found another man and said, Strike me, please. So the man struck him and flicked in a wound. Then the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. Now as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and said, Your servant went out in the midst of the battle. And there a man came over and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life or else you shall pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy, here and there he was gone. Then the king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. And he hastened to take the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. Not necessarily one of the two we've already had in the story, but one of the prophets. Then he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased, And came to Samaria. He was supposed to kill them. He was supposed to wipe them out. How many of you ever think. Man God is just mean. Why would God do that? Why would God have them. Wipe them out. Why would God have them. Just they've surrendered. They're no longer in the fight. Why should we just kill them? I don't understand that. Because God knows what's coming. And he knows that if you do not wipe them out now. They will come back. And they will lay siege against this city. And in fact, if you go a few chapters up in the, in the, into, uh, second kings, you will find they laid, the Syrians came back, they laid siege around the city. Do you remember the story where a goat's head sold for some incredible amount of money? And the king said, may the, may the gods do so to me and more also. <laughs> I think that's how he actually, actually, he said it. If Elisha's head remains on his head. And he sent somebody out to kill him. And Elisha, before he got there, he said, Can you see how this murderer has sent this one out to kill me? But God had already warned him. God had already told him. And that's when Elisha had the word that tomorrow, flour is going to be, be super cheap. And they said, and the one guy stood up and said, if, if the windows of heaven opened, how could this be? And he said, Well, you're going to hear about it. You're not going to, you're going to see it. You're not going to taste of it. That was Elisha. And that was the Syrians who surrounded the city. And God says, I know they're coming back to do this. So I want you to take care of these people because they are enemies of the kingdom of God. And I want you to wipe them out so that they do not come back and do this. They didn't do it. Ahab disobeyed. Because Ahab disobeyed, many people died down the road. But he's looking at this, hey, I can make some money. I can set up markets. I can do some things. So Ahab spoke his own judgment. Doesn't this sound kind of similar to David? When the prophet came to David and David spoke his own judgment? But you see, this judgment fell upon Ahab. It didn't fall upon David because Ahab was remorseful. He was sad. David was repentant. And there's a difference there. So what God here, he worked through a very imperfect man to bring about deliverance for the present. Ahab is a very imperfect person. Ahab does not serve God all the time. But he brought about deliverance. God brought about deliverance for the present. He brought a defense for what is coming. He told him, this is coming. And I'm going to use you as a defense against this. And I'm telling you what to do to get ready. It was He used this Ahab king as a demonstration of who was God. But it, but God is disappointed in the end. Because he didn't stay with it. Now, you're going to see that you're going to have the good, the less good, the bad, and the ugly. When you have people in the Word of God. You're going to have the good people, you're going to have the less good people, you're going to have the bad people, and you're going to have the ugly. Just flat out ugly. Ugly bad. This is Ahab. Ahab is still hearing things from God to do. He's making excuses. Making excuses for it. That's where that comet came from. The idea for that comet came from in your bulletin, if you didn't read that. Now, there were good leaders. David, Hezekiah, Josiah. These are good leaders. There are those who started out good, but became bad. Saul started out good, but became bad. Jeroboam started out good, but he became bad. They're ones that were all bad. They were bad from the beginning. They were bad at the end. They didn't have anything in between that was good. Kings like Ammon, Jehoiakim. These were bad all the way from the start to the finish. Then you have some that are mostly bad. Mostly bad ones whom God saw some good in. Or he could use. Or could be used by God at times. Here you have Ahab. Nebuchadnezzar, God used Nebuchadnezzar at times, God used Cyrus to not only bring the children of Israel home, but to finance it, a heathen king financed them coming back, building the wall, building the temple, he financed it, isn't that amazing, heathen king, he served idols, but God used them. There's also a story here in First Kings chapter 14. I just want to read these few verses for you. Beginning in verse 10. This is talking about a judgment that, that is pronounced upon Jeroboam and his house. Therefore, behold, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel bond and free. And I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as one takes away refuse until it is all gone. Let me give you a little bit of this background on this verse. What happened was Jeroboam his son was sick and so he said I can't go to the prophet so wife you go and so she went to the prophet to get a word about what would happen to their son because they want the son to live and so she disguised herself and she went to Ahijah the prophet who had given Jeroboam the word to begin with went to Ahijah and by this point Ahijah's eyesight the word of God tells us he was nearly blind He couldn't see. So they went to a blind prophet and disguised herself. And when she comes to the door, Ahijah identifies her. Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another woman? (laughs) That'll take care of it. So those are some of the verses that went on before. I should have uh, just wanted to know about that. You can go read them yourself if you want to. Verse 11, the dog shall eat whoever belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field, for the Lord has spoken. Arise therefore, go to your own house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. Can you imagine that on the mom? Mom going home, but as soon as you get, soon as you get into the city, your son dies. That means you're never going to see him again. But that was a tough trip home. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. I read all this to get to this one verse. For he is the only one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something good toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. God looked over all the descendants of Jeroboam, and he said, this is one. And he's got a little bit of good in him. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to have him die because I want him spared from what's coming. Wow. He saw something good inside this one son. There's something good there. Do you know that God can still see if there's something good inside of some people? We may look at him and say, all bad. But God may look at Ahab and say, you know, there's a little bit of good in there. I'm trying to get at that little bit of good. And God kept sending prophets and kept trying to use them because He saw some little bit of good in there. You can go on and read the the rest of that if you want to, but I posed this question i was uh I do a lot of reading, and I was just reading a couple of articles, one of them was on some some Hebrew words, and it intrigued me, so I read through the whole thing and I really wasn't thinking I was going to do anything with it here now, but it kind of just tied into into this Do you know? That in the Bible, if you want to go back and read this over in Genesis chapter 1, when God is creating, how many remember this phrase that is in the word of God? And God saw the light, and the light was good. How many times does God say in that creation story that it was good? You're going to find this out if you went back to and read this over. That God said that everything that he did was good except one thing, and that was the firmament around the earth. It's the only thing he didn't say was good. Not saying that it wasn't good. It's the only thing he didn't put that phraseology on. Now understand what we have in Genesis, it came from Adam. Adam and God talked. And God told Adam the creation story. And Adam told his sons. His sons told their sons. Some of those sons just came right to Adam and God at first hand. So this is where this story comes from. And so when you see, you can you can take every word because this is how God spoke it to, Ada, to, to Adam. And it was very good. And it was very good. And it was very good. I'm sorry, at the end, when he summarized the whole thing, he didn't just say it was good. He said it was very good. When he looked over the whole thing, he said it was very good. That word good, it comes from the Greek word. It's spelled T-O-B, tab, but it's pronounced Tab. It means pleasant. Yeah, that's, that's one reason I don't like Greek. I mean, how, make it, make it uh, pronounced the way it's spelled. But anyway, tab. It's actually a, what they call a soft B. Pleasant, agreeable, good, but not perfect. Not perfect. Some of the places that you'll see here, that this is used beside the creation story is in Genesis chapter 2 in verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Now the word good there is the same word, tab. When God says in verse 18 it is not good that man should be alone. That is the Greek word, tav. Say all that for you this. The Hebrew language has two words for perfect. Two main words that are used for perfect. Two word groups, I should put it in the the way that I have written here. There are two word groups for perfect in Hebrew. One, they're they're all translated perfect or perfection, but it can mean let me read it right right out here, in the Hebrew Old Testament are translated perfect or perfection, tamam or kalal. The former connotes wholeness, soundness, integrity, and often takes on ethical significance. The latter connotes completeness, perfection, and can carry the aesthetic sense of comeliness or beauty. Those are the two things for perfection. How many of you believe that when God was finished with the earth, he was satisfied with it? How many believe when he got finished creating the earth, not not creating, but remaking the earth and reforming it the way it had been before, how many believe that he was satisfied with it? And God saw, and it was very good. But as God describes it, this is God describing it. This is God describing Genesis chapter 1. God never uses the word perfect. He does not call the creation of the earth perfect. There's a lot of things that he does not call perfect. The the word tov in various uses is, uh, and I've I've seen different phrases, so I'm not sure exactly what they're looking at. Between 300 and 500 times this word is used in the Old Testament to describe things that are good, not perfect. If it wanted to say perfect, it would use one of the two words for perfect. Didn't use those. What I'm saying for you here is God created the earth, reformed the earth after the judgment, rebrought everything in into a state that he called good. It was not a state that he called perfect. Is God ever satisfied with good? Yeah, he sure is. God does not always need perfect. Sometimes satisfied with good. Was God satisfied with David? David was good. David wasn't perfect. God was satisfied with Abraham. Abraham was good. Abraham wasn't perfect. God was satisfied with Hezekiah. Hezekiah was good. Hezekiah wasn't perfect. You can tell that just from his life. He's getting ready to... God says... You're done. You're ready. You're going home. <laughs> You're dying. And he repented of whatever he had to repent of. He wasn't perfect. Sometimes we get the idea that God has to, it has to be perfect in order for God to be in it. And we have to get that thinking out of our heads sometimes. It's good to go after the perfect. But sometimes, folks, the best we can do, because we're imperfect people, the best we can do is good. God's not looking for you to make some kind of perfect thing He's okay with you doing the best you can and getting something good. The best you can with what God has given you. Just like when you got that four-year-old and they drew that picture for you. Is there anything wrong with that picture? It's not a masterpiece, is it? But to you it is. Why? This is good. It's not perfect. They colored outside the lines. They used the wrong colors for the faces. But how many of y'all know, oh, this is good. This is good. We enjoy many things that God calls good, not perfect. We're getting ready for a, to, to vote here in November. You're going to be looking at some candidates that are not perfect. When was the last time you found a candidate that was perfect? Been a little while, had not it? Maybe forever. Sometimes it seems like we are deciding between a bad one and a worse one. We have to take a look at this. And see, because a lot of Christians, they get this idea. Well, there's no real good one, so I'm just not going to vote. And then we're turning it over to the heathens. Don't be doing that. We went through and we looked at all those different kings. There were some good ones, there were some bad ones, there were some mediocre ones. And God was still able to use them. And God was even able to use an Ahab. But when you go to the polls... And you decide who it is that you're going to vote for. I'm not here to tell you who to vote for. It's not my role. I know my role. My role is to teach you the Word of God. My role is to teach you what, who God is and to recognize the hand of God on people. I want you to recognize when the hand of God is on someone and when they're not. I want you to recognize when you see the powers of darkness behind one. As you can see, I'm not siding with that. Because if I side for things... That are not what my God side's for. I got a problem. You know, when we were going through the, the primary for, um, Pennsylvania here for the, for the Senate, I was on Kathy Barnett's team. Uh, Talked with some of you. Some of you folks were on Kathy Barnett's team too. I loved the things she stood for and things she was doing. I could see the hand of God on her. She didn't make it in. I did all I could do. I only voted once, but <laughs> I did all I could do. But she's not in there. Now when Dr. Oz was running, I looked at him and I said, No, I don't want that. But now see I'm I'm stuck. I got Fetterman and I got Oz. That's not a real fun situation to be in. So what I have to do is I gotta take these these candidates, all right, who is standing up for the unborn? Because I know my God is concerned about that. And you can read through the Old Testament. You're going to find out he is very concerned about what happens to them babies. He judged Israel for what happened to them babies. i got to find that out. There's Christians out there who said they've been praying and praying and praying that Roe versus Wade would be overturned and then go out and vote for people who will not put legislation in place to enforce what is now open in their state. How can you do that? I don't know. When I vote, I'll make sure I vote along those lines. I know, I've read the, the two different candidates. I'm not going to tell you. You can go read it. You've got voter guys out there. you got places you can go find the thing. I know who wants to close schools again and who doesn't. Now, when I was looking at some of the stuff before, I was looking at Oz and I think Oz and, and Fetterman on the same side on the vaccine. I think both would try and force you to get it. I have no confidence that Oz would not stop you. Not push legislation to have that go through. No confidence at all. I know Fetterman won't. But I have no confidence that I won't either. So there's some places, you know, this is not perfect. We do not have perfect candidates up there. But I take them and I look at them. Because when I get to heaven, I want to say, God, I voted for the one. It was the most on your side I could see. Who stood for the things that you, st- whether they're Christians or not. If they stand for the things that my God is standing for. I want somebody who's going to stand up and protect the girls in the girls' room. I want somebody who's going to stand up and protect the girls in the girls' locker room. I don't want no no young man going in there because he's dressed in a skirt. Something like that. I I don't want that. I don't want to put people in charge that are going to do that. I don't have a daughter in school anymore. My granddaughters are homeschooled. But I know other people. They've got daughters in school. And they've got granddaughters in school. I don't want somebody in there who is who is this way. Who would be thinking, who would not be standing up there and protecting. One of the things that uh, happened before Hezekiah took the throne is the king, his father, when he took the the throne, it said he permitted the perverted persons in the land. And then Hezekiah took the throne. It said he banished the perverted persons from the land. We've got some perverted people out there. These people who, who say that your kid can't make a decision to take an aspirin or carry an aspirin to school, but they can make a decision to change whether they're boys or girls. Come on. These are perverted people. There was this I don't know if you heard the story, probably you, you have. I've heard it as often as I heard it. But there's this father who was arrested at a school board meeting because he raised a fuss. Because his daughter was in the in the bathroom. And a boy dressed in a skirt raped her. And the school didn't do anything with it. They transferred him to another school. And at this next school, he did the same thing. And the father was very upset that nothing was being done to this boy. And so he raised a fuss at a school board meeting. He was tackled, handcuffed, and arrested. Anybody not hear that story? If you didn't hear that story, I can find it for you and get it to you. These are perverted people. I want these perverted people out of our government. I want them away. When you go and you vote, I know there's a lot of candidates in there that I don't like. I don't like them personally. I told you there's one of them. I met them. I am not going to enjoy voting for them. I haven't just quite decided what I'm going to do with on that one just yet. But I'm going to pick somebody. Because I stand before my Father. Father, did I impose my will or did I follow yours? Because that's what I'm responsible for. And that's what you're responsible for. Now, you don't need to come tell me who you voted for and don't think I'm going to think one way or another about it. It's not my responsibility to make sure that you vote for the same people that I do. That's not. My responsibility is to teach you what the Word of God says and teach you what your responsibility is as far as God is concerned. You do what went to it from there. I did my part. Just like the prophets in the Old Testament. You gotta say what the word is. You don't gotta convince anybody. You just gotta say it. So when you get ready, you got what, a week and a, a, little bit over a week to, to get ready for this election coming up. Do your, do your research. Know what the candidates believe. Don't blow, don't, don't, uh, um, vote for them because they're in a party that you always vote for. Vote for them because, God, I can see your hand on this one. I can see this is not a very good person, but I can see they are more open to being used by you on some of these issues than other people would be. And I'll vote for them for that reason only. And God will work with them. I mean, God worked with Ahab. Don't we always associate Ahab with utter evil? Utter evil. And yet, when we go through his story, we're going to find out there were some things he did that was actually not so bad. And God actually did use him at times. And he did have a heart for the things of God. Even when that whole thing on the mountain went, went down, it seemed like he had a turn. Came back after <laughs> turned around again. But these are the things you're going to be responsible for. You may not always find perfect people to vote for, but you've got to find ones that are going in the direction that God says. I try never to be a one-issue person. I don't get to think, well, if you're not for abortion, then I don't vote for you. And if you are, I try not to get into that one thing because there's a lot of a lot of stuff out there. There may be somebody who would support abortion, but they also hit on all these other ones. I don't like voting for a person like that, but if the person on the other side would also do that and all these other things, well, okay, then we got to take a look at that. Is it good enough for God? That's what we have to ask ourselves. Because when you get out there and you're voting, you don't have 20 people. You can't just write in your own candidate and expect that they're actually going to win and, and get in there. You've got two, maybe three people that are running that have a shot. And you've got to decide which of those two or three people are going to represent God the best. And then they're the ones that you need to vote for. So check them out. Do what you need to do. But don't sit there and say, well, it's got to be perfect. Perfect. If God made this earth and called it good, did not call it perfect, we can be satisfied with good. Well, it's good. Or maybe it can be satisfied with an Ahab. No, he's not so good. he got a little bit of good in there, but not so, not so good. But when God came across those ones that were all evil, he sent judgment. I don't want to put people in our country's administration that are such pure evil that they bring judgment upon this this land. So we got to make sure we keep them out. So get yourself ready. Make sure you get out there next Tuesday. should be next Tuesday, right? Not this Tuesday, but I think the, the next one, that's the, the one it should be. Make sure you know who your candidates are and go in there and you, uh, you vote for the ones that, God, I know this one will stand for you here and I know this one will stand for you here and I know this one will stand. Know that. And go in there knowing it. That's our role. Stand up with me if you would. Well, glory to God. Well, we took a little break off of our what we were doing here. We're still in the area of of questions. But I I have more things I want to take a look at as far as what Jesus did and the questions that were coming to him. But uh, I knew November is approaching. And I just wanted to make sure that you all know that uh, we don't have to be looking for the perfect. And if we don't find it, just bail out. That's not what we have to do as Christians. We can find the good. We can find the... eh, It's not as good, but not as good as I would like, but we'll go with this. Father, I thank you for the help that you give us. That Father, as we go on through and we look at these candidates that are running for these elected offices, that you help us to see the hand of God that is on those. Just as you would spend time with Ahab to keep trying to pull him over to the good side, keep trying to pull him over to the ways of God. There are people that show a lot of bad traits like Ahab did. But there are people that you are working on trying to pull them over. And there are some that have bent themselves to evil but will say what people want them to say and make them think they will go in a good direction. But Father, your light cuts through all that and I thank you that you do. In our own life, we have decisions to make. And sometimes we feel like this decision is tough and this one doesn't look any better. But we stand a limited place. We can't see it all. Father, I thank you for the light that you bring into our life that you can show us. Your hand is on this choice. Your hand is on this decision. And your blessing will go with it too. We know how to follow your light. We know how to follow the voice of the Spirit of God. I thank you for that. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.